Hi there, this is Robert Green, and you're listening to Kleptocracy and Corruption, Afghanistan, Episode 2, Patterns of Unhealthy Economic Policy. In today's episode, we will be analyzing the development and implementation of unhealthy economic policy throughout the war in Afghanistan. This episode will start by looking at the initial spending patterns during the early phase of the war, including the invasion period and the period after 2002, when the Taliban were ousted from power. This period was characterized by the establishment of unhealthy economic policies and habits. After this, I'll move into a discussion of the Obama era, which is where we see a huge influx of cash into Afghanistan, as well as an increase in the overall budget of U.S. military operations in Afghanistan. Lastly, I will analyze the Trump era and the odd situation of scaled-down troop numbers, but still an intense amount of money being spent. A question to keep in mind while you're listening is how sustainable were these spending habits and policies in the first place? So, let's talk about the initial Bush period. One main point to think about in this section is U.S. policy focused too much on material projects such as infrastructure leading to underfunding of agricultural and funding for government institutions. Let's look at an example. So, the Ring Road, which was a road that was supposed to connect the major cities of Afghanistan, was a large undertaking, a large infrastructure project, and many would argue that it did not provide a sustainable use because although it would have connected major cities, Afghanistan is an inherently decentralized society, decentralized government before the new Western government or Western-backed government took over. So many argued, since it's so decentralized and it's not industrialized, there doesn't need to be this large road that connects the entire country. So according to Vox, $3 billion have been spent on the Ring Road to date, and it still is unfinished, and its condition is getting worse every day. President Bush's justification for the road was that he believed where the roads end in Afghanistan, the Taliban begins. In other words, roads promote enterprise. Enterprise promotes hope. Hope is what defeats this ideology of darkness. What this policy seems to ignore is that how can the Afghan people expect to engage in commerce and trade when they are starving and simply trying to survive? Hope would not come from a highway, but through feeling safe knowing your government could protect you, and knowing where your next meal was guaranteed to come from. This funding could have been used to address lack of food funding, food insecurity, school funding, and the little funding for forces, for security forces outside of the capital at this time. These examples speak to a fundamental flaw of U.S. policy, which was to prioritize big infrastructure projects that could justify continued American presence in Afghanistan to the American people. So further on in the Bush period, we get to about from 2003 to 2006. In 2003, we see a shift in U.S. economic policy from simply funding what you could argue maybe are unnecessary infrastructure projects or less important projects and underfunding sustainable, more holistic projects to an excessive amount of spending 
that was more than Afghanistan could handle. In 2003, the U.S. shifted to a full state-building project in Afghanistan, something that President Bush had once been opposed to and had convinced the American people would not be the course of action. According to the Inspector General's Special Report on Afghan Reconstruction, as of 2004, the absolute amount of U.S. spending in Afghanistan had exceeded an amount 45 times the gross domestic product of Afghanistan. The implications of this is that U.S. spending had eclipsed Afghanistan's absorptive threshold, which is the point that denotes how much aid a nation can absorb until further spending becomes counterproductive. The Inspector General defines an absorptive threshold as the amount of international aid that a country can receive before it causes significant economic, social, and political disruptions and becomes counterproductive. Developing countries with fragile economies, such as those experienced prolonged conflict, are believed to have a lower threshold for aid saturation. International aid above the absorptive capacity threshold can lead to waste, fraud, and increased corruption. This definition applies perfectly to the situation in Afghanistan. Instead of properly reallocating the initial funding from infrastructure to other projects, the United States adopted the policy of throwing money at the problem. From an economic point of view, this was doomed from the start because the Afghan government and economy as a whole did not have the capacity to absorb this level of investment, especially in this short time period. The fact that exceeding the absorptive threshold leads to increased fraud and corruption suggests that this increased spending was a key in creating the Afghan kleptocracy. Without having an economy that could absorb these investments, government leaders absorb the excess with their own bank accounts. Let's move on to the end of the Bush era. So this time period is about 2006 to 2008, and we see the development of a more corrupt government and the resurgence of the Taliban. The corruption of the government was clear, but there were not adequate mechanisms to address it and excessive funding continued. In the last two years of the Bush presidency, the United States doubled down on their new economic policies in Afghanistan and continued to ramp up spending at a rate that the Afghan economy could not absorb. This continued increase in funding coincided with a violent resurgence of the Taliban. As per usual, the response to the United States was to throw money at the problem. Although the resurgence of the Taliban was clearly distressing, the more distressing problem, I'd argue, was that the levels of corruption were rising exponentially. Craig Whitlock addresses some of these books in his point, The Afghan Papers, which is based on a number of interviews with people heavily involved in the Afghan war. In reference to the time period I'm talking about, former State Department senior advisor Barnett Rubin said in a 2015 interview, the basic assumption was that corruption is an Afghan problem and we are the solution. Barnett went on further to say, but there is one indispensable ingredient for corruption money, and we were the ones who had the money. What I gather from this quote is that almost a decade into the war in Afghanistan, it was clear to the top levels of the U.S. government 
that corruption was widespread, that Reconstruction was not fully successful unless corruption could be routed out. The part that I find fascinating is that, like Barnett says, you need money for corruption, and the United States was the ones providing the money. Many people argue when rooting out corruption, you simply need to follow the money. In this case, the money leads back to the United States. So ask yourself, was the reason the U.S. could not stop Afghan corruption because the U.S. was the ones enabling the corruption in the first place? Obviously, um, we can't go on without accounting for the neighboring country, or a little further over, Iraq, because that is one main reason we saw the U.S. throwing a lot of money at the Afghan problem, because we have to acknowledge that at the same time, we were also active in Iraq. I can say that I most definitely agree with Whitlock in saying that the United States was responsible for exacerbating levels of corruption because they did not have the foresight to see the damages that bringing billions of dollars into Afghanistan would have. U.S. policy was too hung up on short-term goals, such as getting information on terrorist and Taliban targets, which is obviously quite important, that it resulted to using CIA officials and government contractors to make shady payments to local warlords, local politicians, and religious leaders in exchange for support or information. The implications of this were that the United States essentially set the precedent that it was willing to pay any amount to get what it wanted. This only fueled more corruption because the elite Afghans and those with power on both the national and provincial level knew they could exploit the short-sightedness of the United States to really get whatever they wanted. For example, Whitlock provides chilling evidence of these practices when he reported that out of $160 billion worth of military contracts issued between 2010 and 2014, 40% of the money went to insurgents, warlords, what he describes as criminals, and corrupt officials. These numbers and practices make you question why we were even still in Afghanistan. Some people said we were building a democracy, but is is it even able or is it even possible to build a democracy using inherently undemocratic means like this? Once again, obviously, we have to acknowledge that the U.S. was in a tremendously difficult situation in a new country, and they hadn't had experience on this level of working with such a decentralized population in such an underdeveloped country with practices in ways so different than our political system that obviously they had to use some alternative means that they wouldn't have used in other places. So we should always keep that in mind, that we shouldn't just say the United States was wrong and they shouldn't have done this, this, and that, but it's still important to acknowledge it. So the Bush year started with an invasion that intended to operate in a small footprint capacity, then proceeded to enter into a full state-building project and ultimately to the point where by the end of Bush's second term, there were 20,000 troops in Afghanistan. The Taliban was stronger than ever, and billions of hard-earned American taxpayer dollars were now lining the pockets of corrupt officials and warlords 
All the while, everyday Afghanistan, everyday Afghans were still simply trying to survive. Let's move on to the Obama administration. So the initial Obama period from 2009 to 2011, when Barack Obama came, or came to power after George Bush at the beginning of 2009, he inherited an Afghanistan that was dealing with a full-fledged Taliban insurgency and a government plagued by corruption. The Obama administration's strategy for tackling these problems was a strategy that was labeled the surge. Essentially, this strategy was to send around 30,000 U.S. troops into Afghanistan and up funding in Afghanistan to unprecedented levels. For many, an increase in spending was hard to fathom because many critics of the war were pointing to the fact that we had been spending billions of dollars and had relatively little to show for it except some infrastructure projects and a fully functioning kleptocracy. This surge was intended to last for two years until 2011 when Obama expected the United States to be victorious and finally be able to start the drawdown effort, which he said would culminate in the 2016 um, withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. The rhetoric used by Obama to promote his surge draws striking parallels the rhetoric used by the Bush administration in the early years of the war. In a 2009 speech at West Point, Obama said, After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative. While building the Afghan economy or Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. Now, I don't mean to use this quote as a way to point out that President Obama's strategy was unrealistic, but I am providing you with this to make the connection that even after eight years of war, the United States leadership still thought we could solve the Afghan problem by throwing more money and more troops at it. One of the problems here is during the surge, we can establish that the added troops were needed because Afghanistan was suffering from a full-fledged insurgency. But the flaw in his in Obama's surge policy is that he set a hard deadline for when U.S. troops were going to withdraw. And basically, that kind of negated the efforts of the surge because it allowed the Taliban to sit and wait because they knew we were going to leave. So that obviously led to more money being wasted because we gave the Taliban the upper hand strategically. So the Obama and Bush timeline are similar from the standpoint that both made it seem like the conflict would wrap up shortly and that the U.S. would be able to get in and get out of Afghanistan relatively quickly. Once again, an implication of this is that the American people, I think, were given unrealistic expectation, unrealistic expectation for what was to come. Although President Obama had good intentions that seemed to be well thought out, I would argue that he should have been frank with the American people and acknowledge that although the plan was to start drawing down in 18 months, we should all be prepared for this war to carry on much longer. And that connects to the point that I made previously about not setting that deadline for troops to leave. I think that is the one major flaw in the surge policy 
that from the start, it seems like there wasn't that much commitment to it because he felt the need to say that we were going to leave in a certain amount of time. I think it would have been better strategically to not have say that or not have said that. And also, I think that would have been better for the American people because we would have been prepared for a longer conflict. With this surge, though, we see a change in the rhetoric of economic policy. Off the back of the 2008-2009 recession, President Obama was very conscious of the fact that unlimited spending in Afghanistan would not be popular, especially as 10% of the population was out of work. In the same 2009 speech at West Point, President Obama addressed his economic policy saying in reference to the outcome of the surge, this effort must be based on performances. The days of providing a blank check are over. Despite what the president said about ending the days of blank checks and making funding contingent on progress and success, there are some glaring examples of corruption that seem to negate what he was saying. For example, MSNBC reporter and presenter Rachel Maddow went to Kabul in 2010, where she witnessed the construction of a rich Kabul neighborhood that she subsequently labeled Kabul 90210 in reference to the similarities between these new Kabul mansions and those of Beverly Hills. What she points out is that these new mansions were not here before the surge. She brings up the point that these mansions are the perfect material example of the large-scale corruption that the surge in funds helped create. To help give you a visual, imagine a neighborhood filled with mansions, interiors decorated in ornate gold fixtures, and 24-hour security. The question you have to ask is where did these Afghan officials get the money to make these sprawling neighborhoods? The answer boils down to the continuation of unhealthy U.S. economic policy. I love this quote by Rachel Maddow when she says, Corruption always smells the same. I interpret this to mean that the U.S. knew this type of corruption before, but they just continued, and instead of tackling the problem, they continued with the surge of cash. What made this example possible is likely the misappropriation of funds that Whitlock pointed to in the previous section. To reiterate, 40% of the money brought into Afghanistan between 2010 and 2013 was directed to corrupt figures. I hope this example gives you a look into how these corrupt officials were using their stolen money. Furthermore, it is important to look at the overall spending patterns throughout the surge. President Obama said that the surge would cost the United States around $30 billion annually for military expenditures. This number was a massive understatement. The United States Department of Defense reported in 2020 that in 2010 alone, the year of the surge, the United States spent $80 billion on military expenditures, $50 billion more than the president expected. Unsurprisingly, by this point, the annual expenditures continued to increase in the next couple of years reaching $100 billion by the year 2012. This is not to mention that roughly 30 to $40 billion allocated to, re- to reconstruction projects between 2010 
and 2012. I think what we can learn from these statistics and examples is that in the first few years of the Obama administration and the search policy, corruption was only strengthened, and the kleptocratic elite obviously grew comfortable with flaunting their wealth. As I've said before, we cannot forget about the everyday Afghan people. According to stats provided by the BBC in 2011, 40% of Afghans lived in poverty, 85% of people did not have bank accounts, and 500,000 people were officially homeless. The contrast between the elite and the everyday Afghan only goes to show just how widespread and detrimental the levels of corruption were. It is also important to point out that the levels of poverty and homelessness would only increase over the course of the war. I'll finish off this segment by returning to the idea of maximum absorptive capacity. If you recall, during the Bush administration, U.S. spending in Afghanistan exceeded nearly 40% of Afghanistan's GDP, putting it well over its maximum absorptive capacity. The Inspector General report that reported that as of the Obama surge, U.S. spending was now 100% greater than Afghanistan's GDP, nearly double of its maximum absorptive capacity. We should make no mistake that the government did not know these policies were perpetuating corruption. In 2010, National Security Advisor Rangan Sparta, Spar, Spanta sorry, was quoted saying, Corruption is not just a problem for the system of governments in Afghanistan. It is the system of governance. Clearly, as this surge period came to a close, it is clear that it was an economic failure. This policy failed to account for prior economic trends in Afghanistan. The silver lining of these years was that Osama bin Laden was finally killed, which was our main mission when we invaded Afghanistan. This obviously led to increased approval ratings for President Obama despite the economic corruption and chaos in Afghanistan. The widespread poverty and economic disparities make their little to no audience cost for those in power. And that is chilling because it allowed the Afghans to, or those Afghans in power, to continue in their corrupt practices and misallocating funds and stealing money, and the people of Afghanistan were not able to hold them accountable because they didn't have those mechanisms. And we'll touch on those in a later episode about the electoral process. So the later Obama period, from 2012 to 2016. Throughout his second term in office, President Obama started to scale down the economic aid, but not to pre-surge levels. Despite these reductions, the consequences of the massive influx in cash between 2009 and 2012, or 2011, sorry, had already created lasting damage. This damage was the formation of an economic elite who were able to take advantage of excessive aid to line their own pockets and buy political power, either through bribes to the government or buying government positions for themselves and their families. 
economists have pointed to the fact that throughout both of President Obama's terms in office, the funding provided to Afghanistan always exceeded the country's maximum absorptive capacity. This created the illusion that Afghanistan's economy and GDP were growing. In the final years of the Obama administration, administration's time in office, we see a move from the responsibility of allocating funds, either from donors or the United States and its allies, being responsibility of the United States, to almost being entirely the responsibility of the Afghan government. Now, now that this responsibility was put on the Afghans, I would argue it helped further entrench corruption because it did not have the proper oversight. I think there can be a comparison drawn between Afghan funding and the concepts of categorical and block grants that the federal government allocates to individual U.S. states. So the difference between these two types of grants is that categorical grants must be used for a specific purpose or project and allows the federal government to put certain restrictions on said grants. Block grants are fairly broad and can be used essentially at the discretion of the state government for whichever purpose they deem it necessary. I think in Afghanistan, we can see that funding often took a similar form of a block grant type of package instead of a categorical one which facilitated the misallocation of funds because there were not many tangible constraints or restrictions on the funding itself. Ultimately, I think what we can take away from the Obama era is that a kleptocracy that was already forming in the early years of the war was able to thrive and embed itself in the government due to the excess funding an aid that was always going to be prone to the effects of corruption and its misappropriations. I think the Inspector General sums it up the best in a 2016 report um, when they cited the Commission on Wartime Contracting in Iraq and Afghanistan, who concluded that criminal behavior and blatant corruption sap dollars from what could otherwise be successful project project outcomes and more disturbingly contribute to a climate in which huge amounts of waste are accepted as the norm. The key takeaway here is the last part, which is that waste and corruption had become the norm and was widely accepted as something that was here to stay. This outlook would carry into future administrations, as we'll see in a moment. So, the Trump era. Under the Trump administration, we see a vast reduction of troop numbers, which, to acknowledge, had started under President Obama, and continued increases in violence in Afghanistan, with reports of 2018 being one of the conflict's deadliest years, with over 3,000 civilian casualties. It is important to acknowledge that during these years, there was extremely low U.S. casualties averaging about one a month. So we really see the contrast between actual U.S. military deaths and the widespread death among the civilian population. We also see an 11% increase from the year prior, so 2017, so it increased to 
11% to 3,000 civilian casualties that were reported. Throughout these years, the Afghan government continued to increase security and defense spending while ignoring and often while often ignoring development projects that would have been crucial to working towards eventual economic sustainability. The irony behind this is that while funding for security forces increased, the Taliban made rapid gains throughout the country and undermined the security of Afghanistan. One reason for this is we can probably link it back to the surge policy and how President Obama had kind of set that deadline for when we were going to leave. So the Taliban had many years just to sit, wait, regroup, and train, and further entrench themselves. So as we know, now this type of security spending was ill-advised because when the Taliban took over in the summer of 2021, they faced little to no resistance from the Afghan security forces. Essentially. The funding used for Afghan security translated to indirectly funding the Taliban by leaving them bases, military vehicles, and weapons. So, what have we established in this episode? Well, one major component is that throughout the Afghan war, the United States failed to acknowledge and learn from their economic policy mistakes. This included a continued increase of funding despite it being clear that the Afghan economy could not absorb these levels of funding. The acknowledgement but lack of response to institutional corruption and the lack of economic oversight on the behalf of the United States. In next week's episode, we will be diving deeper into the ideas of sustainability and oversight and looking at how these issues shaped the war in Afghanistan. That being said, Thank you for listening to to Kleptocracy and Corruption. I hope you learned something new and can't wait for you to join me next week. Make sure to give the podcast a like and and follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Thank you and look forward to seeing you next week.